0: welcome back friends we are episode two of the podcast explaining all the things as always i am your host jamie wilson joined by my co-host miles mancini
1: we are so excited to be here for episode two of explaining all the things so jamie uh we take this show on the road each and every time do you want to tell our listeners where we are this time
0: we are at the library, the FTCU campus library. I'm up on the fourth floor in a little room that has no windows.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's the common link between our offices. We both have no windows. I'm not in the library, but we both have the offices with no windows. I think though that it is perfect that we are in the library to have this discussion about our theme today. So let's not wait any longer. Tell them about our theme for episode two. TV of the 1960s. Yeah, television of the 1960s. I am so excited to talk about television of the 1960s. Do you know any television from the 1960s?
0: Okay, so I've been trying to think about television in the 1960s. And honestly, my upbringing, the earliest memories I have of television is watching the TGIF lineup on Friday nights of like Full House, Family Matters, Uh, Those types of things. I don't really remember TV of the 1960s.
1: Yeah, so obviously we're of an age that the 1960s television was not our era of television. However... I grew up watching a lot of the 1960s television because it was in syndication. So a lot of reruns from classic TV shows. So if you ever watched reruns of Gilligan's Island or The Brady Mm -hmm. Bunch or a number of those shows, right, those were um, airing in the 1960s, but then re-airing in the 80s and 90s. Uh, And I remember vividly as a kid, I would be so excited for Saturdays because after the Saturday morning cartoons, which are always a lot of fun, and we had one day a week that you could watch cartoons, imagine that today. Um, Early,
0: (laughs) uh, early on Saturday. you yes. didn't
1: have like whole networks no. dedicated to, to cartoons. So I'd watch cartoons in the morning. And then a little bit later, there were a few shows that I was just addicted to. And one of those shows was Batman. Now, we're not talking about the Batman from the 80s starring Michael Keaton and all I that. I love him. He's great. But this was Batman starring Adam West from the 1960s. So I watched that Batman uh, pretty much throughout my childhood. And the other show I was really obsessed with was a show called Lost in Space. And that aired in the 1960s originally, but then again was in syndication about the Robinson. Sort of a a modern spaceship take on the Swiss family Robinson. They're lost in space instead of stranded, right? So um, it it was a fun show to watch as a kid.
0: Wasn't Lost in Space just redone? Yes. Is it on Netflix? Yeah. So Mm -hmm. there's a
1: Netflix show that was a reboot of that 1960s TV show, so everything comes back everything comes back. again. So we are going to do a deep dive today into 1960s television. Are you ready? Let's do it.
0: Okay. So uh, we had some readings that our viewers did, and uh, they submitted some questions. We'll get to those in a little bit. But um, I want to start off by talking about the 1960s Climate, like we we know that TV exists today, and not probably not a lot of our listeners even watch regular TV. They probably do, like you said, a lot of the paid um, subscription channels and those types of things. So, um, McLaughlin's article talking about the surprising things that TV has done for us, and a lot of students or a lot of listeners probably didn't know um, that things were different. Right? There wasn't a twenty four hour news cycle. There. Uh, televising, um, political um, debate was not a yeah, thing.
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, we start to see televised leba- debates in the 1960s, uh, really with uh, with Nixon and Kennedy, right? That becomes the most one of the most famous, uh, you know, televised debates of all time. And to this day, we're talking about it. Why? Because television as a medium was relatively new. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though, yes, you could say that uh, what modern television was originated roughly in the late 1920s into the 1930s, you start to see it at the World World's Fair back then, uh, but it really didn't get into mass production into Americans' homes at least until well into the 1940s. And then you start to see it ramp up in the 1950s with with a lot of television programming and really learning about like, okay, we have we have to put content on here. So what what you know what were primarily the shows in the 50s? A lot of it was adapted from the radio, so they would take shows from the radio and put it onto television, adapt it that way. Uh, and then the other thing you would see a lot of were quiz shows of that time. Oh. Oh, yes, the game shows, yes. Game shows, which we still have, right? I mean, that's still, interestingly enough, you know, we're in the library, we're talking about how writers are, uh, you know, an important part of TV, right? The library is a great place because there's all these books. But without writing, without writers, you don't have television. And early television, all of those shows had to be scripted, written up, uh, and and adapted. And today, of course, current events, we're having things happening like the writer's strike. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be affecting, already is affecting television. uh, If you've noticed that some of your shows aren't back yet, uh, some of your favorite shows that you may watch, uh, especially on the legacy networks. And when I say legacy networks, I'm talking about CBS NBC, ABC, you know that at that time there were three networks and those were the three legacy networks and You're gonna see shows not be airing it, and it's also affecting streaming because those shows will be delayed So if you're waiting for that next season of stranger things, you're gonna be waiting a little bit longer because I, of that. I was
0: just reading an article yesterday uh, that drew Barrymore is getting some backlash because her writers, she's like, well, let's just get to work. And they're like, uh, no, let's not. Uh, we're on strike, remember? So um, yeah. even so, even um, those talk shows, talk shows,
1: daytime talk shows, game shows game and those shows. things. There's writing involved. I always think it's interesting, right? What's the fine line between those shows and say, um, because now we live in a 24-hour news cycle. So when you're watching, uh, you know, if our listeners watch shows like uh, something on CNN or something that's on Fox News or, uh, you know, one of those pun shows there's writing done on those shows, especially the morning shows, especially. You'll know, you see that. Even the Today show, even the stuff that's Mm -hmm. not super political, that's just sort of the wake up and get going type news shows. There's writing involved with those shows, but they get around it because it's news-based, right? Right. And so when we talk about Drew Barrymore or Bill Maher or a number of these other like talk show people, Jimmy Fallon, if they do their shows, yes, there's a component that's not written. It's the interview portion of it when they're talking to guests, but then there's that other portion where they're doing a monologue and there are a lot of people that write parts of that they're not just doing that on the spot
0: right uh- the, what was really striking to me when going through the um, the McLaughlin piece was mm-hmm. the the talk about TV journalism and it kind of struck to me as the fact that TV was really in the 1960s our first social media For sure. so it, you weren't getting um, you know news updates on your phone you right. had to wait for the weekly newspaper right. to come out and so those legacy channels that you were talking about had a way to kind of keep people updated of what was going on in your nation and abroad. Um, And we actually have um, a listener question um, talking about the news channels. Um, Peyton D. asks, if these news channels of the television never existed, do you think there would still be a major divide in political parties?
1: All right, Peyton. That's a pretty interesting question, right? The idea that um,
0: because the, I think the thought process is there are channels that are devoted, or yes. you would think would be devoted to certain thoughts of the political spectrum. Sure, is that? I think that's probably what Peyton is saying. Sure,
1: yeah. And and I think what's hard for people to wrap their heads around, if you're not from the 1960s, is that you know people used to look at news as being impartial and unbiased right So uh, for example, you'd have an anchor person like Walter Cronkite that was. You know, the, one of the number one anchors of that era, who did everything from the moon landings to you know just about your your nightly news, and most Americans at that time were getting their news read to them by Walter Cronkite, and there was a certain esteem that mm. anchors had at that time. Very trustworthy. Yes, they were considered to be the most trustworthy sources. Now we laugh at that sort of today, right? We say, oh, you know, who, who can trust anybody on any channel, right? But back then it was different. Uh, and to your point about you know, how we, you know, social media and all that. Yeah, people waited for the nightly news, especially in the 1960s were engaged in the Vietnam War. Um, there's civil unrest in many of our major cities. Uh, people waited to hear what was going on in our nightly news to find out what was, ha- you know, how many American lives were lost overseas. And news was very different then. They showed a lot more on television. You might be surprised to know that television was not as censored yeah. back then as it is today.
0: And our students have talked about that too. The um, idea of censorship came up, up quite a bit. I think um, Drew H. Um, wrote in, considering this, how did television's portrayal of these events impact public perception and awareness? And can you draw any parallel to the role of media in shaping public opinion? So it's this idea that um, censorship tells you what you can and cannot watch, right? Right. Um, And um, in the 60s, you're dealing with a lot of people really against the war. Um, You're dealing with... um, presidents that are, you know, uh, going through a lot of turmoil in the in the White House. But when people say, Oh, you know, it's so bad right now, our country is so divided, our country is so divided. It was divided in the 1960s. 100%. 100%
1: yeah, it was divided. And, you know, to that point of television's portrayal, I really like Drew's question. Television had a huge impact in how the opinion with the Vietnam War, for example, changed over time. Because this was not just something that the Republicans or the Democrats were doing. This spanned political parties, spanned presidents, right? You can go back and say, well, John F. Kennedy had a role in getting things ramped up in Vietnam and certainly Lyndon B. Johnson, uh, both Democrats, and then you have Richard Nixon coming into office. And so things are changing political party-wise in control of power. And yet, there's still this war in Vietnam and we're still losing lives. But for Americans to see that on the nightly news by an impartial source, how they felt was an impartial source that was reporting the facts, that definitely had a huge impact and, and shifted public opinion.
0: And think about um, how we think of social media, right, is that we're able to see within a snapshot something that's happening across the country or and across the world. Um, we happen to have that, like, in our, in our bag, right? This is what TV was for them. Sure. And um, you didn't know what your family was maybe encountering in another part of the country or what um, and civil unrest was going on until we saw pictures of it. So this sure. really was America's first glimpse mm-hmm. into something outside of their community.
1: Absolutely.
0: Um, and then, you know, that's talking about the serious stuff as far as journalism, right? And the, and the hard-hitting news. But also TV. TV was really fun. Um, they could tackle serious issues like we see um, in uh, The Twilight Zone and we see in Star Trek.
1: Yeah, so the shows that we asked our listeners to uh, to watch were both the, tw- the two two of the marquee TV shows of that era. Um, one was the Twilight Zone that preceded uh, the st- Star Trek. A lot of people no don't necessarily know the timeline. So in the early '60s, uh, you have the, the Twilight Zone, which ran for five seasons and was created and developed by Rod Serling. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about Rod Serling. After the Twilight Zone's success, you have Star Trek, which really picked pitched their TV idea off of a lot of the aspects of The Twilight Zone. Uh, In fact, there are some episodes, one episode that we're going to talk about, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, that starred a young William Shatner. I love William Shatner. (laughs) And he would would later become Captain Kirk, of course, on uh, Star Trek. And that show had just crazy fans watching it. And CBS, for whatever reason, let that show run three seasons, the original Star Trek, and canceled it. And oh I didn't know that yeah yeah and fans were outraged and that's a big reason that they ended up making the movies like they did there was such a fan demand so it's one of those early grassroots movements where you know we hear about that all the time today where fans get upset when a TV show is canceled and they hope that somebody some other network's going to pick it up well back then you only had three networks so it wasn't like another network was going to pick it up but you could have films so they made it into movies afterwards
0: okay so i'm gonna i'm just going to call it out because i think some listener is going to ask this question and i've always wondered this and you're the person to ask oh are Star Trek and Star Wars related? No. Okay, because why Why do I feel like they're the same? They are so different. Oh. They are
1: so different. One is a fantasy and it's a soap opera. Wait,
0: they're both fantasies. Well,
1: they're, I think there's a distinction in genre between science fiction and fantasy. You know, a fantasy doesn't have to adhere to certain... It's a certain laws of physics or you know, like first, chewbacca like, yeah or like, well uh, chewbacca is <laughs> not a great example i would say more like a lightsaber right a lightsaber if you talk to someone who has any knowledge of you know physics oh, and, lightsabers and engineering yes but that, it's not possible right they have this like laser sword the way that it functions it's just not possible it doesn't make sense in our world so that's the difference right, right. science fiction you know star trek was an imagining of what we might look like you know let's speculate a thousand years from now what humanity might actually be able to do you know traverse uh you know galaxies you know traverse to other planets and meet other civilizations really using what we experienced on earth to to figure out what we do in the future
0: well i i'm going to be the first one to say that i'm not a huge star trek fan and uh so of course when the assignment was handed down from (laughs) professor mancini i was like here i go i'm going to watch some star trek and the first thing i noticed was like let's talk about the representation yes like there are people of different colors yes then you of course have um um spock right um i love how he was like trying to hide his ears in yes. in, in that yes. episode um you had lots of talk about um poverty and right. food insecurity and all these like big topics And then mixed in, there's like, you know, time travel.
1: Yeah, for sure. So we watched the episode called City on the Edge of Forever. And so just a little bit of background on that episode. It's written by a prolific science fiction writer um, by the name of Harlan Ellison. Now, I don't know if if this was actually adapted from a short story of his or whatever. Um, In fact, he has a show uh, that some people may may have watched on Amazon called The Man in the High Castle, which is also an alternative history. So Harlan Ellison wrote that. He wrote a number of other stories. And so this this is what's so cool about Star Trek. And the Twilight Zone. They had some of the best writers, going back to that library connection, they had some of the best writers of their time creating the stories uh, for Star Trek and for uh, Twilight Zone. And so that particular episode, by most, is considered one of the best, if not the best episode of all time. Because why? It presents things that most of our listeners probably take for granted today. Time travel. Time travel is not something you saw on any television show ever, and this introduced it to the idea that you could go through this portal, right? They land on this little rock, this planet, and it's not inhabited, but there's this portal that they can jump through and one of their, uh, one of their colleagues, um, uh, it's McCoy. McCoy. It's the, the doctor. Who has uh, all the splotches. Yes, he's, all, he's infected, right? And so he jumps through because he's lost his mind. He jumps through the portal. And the only way they can get him back is if, of course, Captain Kirk and Spock have to jump through at the exact moment and find him before he messes things up. Because they find out that one little action that he does changes the course of human history, right? right? That one act. And that, think about how many stories have been influenced that. Yeah, You know, the idea that all of a sudden like they realize oh are they're trying to call the ship and the ship doesn't exist because mccoy went back changed something and now we don't have a star trek enterprise or anything like that i
0: think a lot of science fiction i can i can probably think of five or ten movies and tv shows that have to do with time travel and how that what is it called the butterfly effect the butterfly effect the how that alters our reality based on the travel that has happened and it never occurred to me that this idea was first shown to us in the 60s from Star Trek. Yeah, so thanks thanks Star Trek for that, and thank this particular episode,
1: you know, in any of those like speculative works of fiction where you're looking at, well, what if the Nazis had won World War II? And we always think well, like, oh, if somebody goes back and changes something, right? But this just takes something so simple, this idea, and I love the part of the story, right? They go back and the, they find out there. So there's this woman that McCoy ultimately will save, and that she's supposed to die, right? She's supposed to die. And if she lives, she starts this like pacifist movement. right? And, and which is sounds awesome, right? I mean, that's why both Spock and Kirk are like enamored with her because, like, she sees into the future. She's like, we really should have like a trailblazer. Yeah, yeah, she's a trailblazer. But if you bring this pacifist movement and it has so much power and it delays us entering into World War II, so what happens is the Nazis ultimately get the atom bomb and they essentially win World War II, or we can't stop them in World War II. So it's like there's this you know oh you can't let this woman die right that's of course Kirk's inner turmoil because yeah and of course it's Star Trek too so he falls in love with every leading lady uh he has but to he's fall, so cute <laughs> he has to fall in love with with the woman as well and uh and and that's a big part of it right he
0: doesn't want her to die because he has a personal connection right him. and then like on i, I don't know if I want to say on the flip side but along the same line sure. so we're talking about tackling serious issues is the idea of um, the Twilight Zone. Yeah, so I
1: was so excited about this because well, both both of the creators. So Gene Roddenberry created Star Trek. And just so our listeners know a little bit about Gene Roddenberry, I'm not going to go into a biography of him, but he actually started out his career as a police officer. And he always wanted to be a writer, but writing didn't necessarily pay the bills, as many writers will probably even tell you to this day. Uh, but Gene Roddenberry wanted life experiences. He also wanted to be able to understand the world around him. And so working i think it was in los angeles that he worked as a police officer and that gave him a lot of those life experiences similarly rod serling who created and wrote an astonishing i think 92 episodes out of the 150 plus so there are about 156 episodes of the twilight zone i think he wrote 92 that's a crazy amount of writing and that's in addition to the movies that he wrote and other anthology shows that he worked on as well he started off he was in the army and i read i think it was the in a variety article that he came up with the title for the twilight zone from his experience in the army and that is a term where an aircraft is going down and when it's going down you lose the sight of the horizon so when you lose the horizon line and of course with a plane you want Hmm. to always know where the horizon line is to keep yourself level and that's the twilight zone So so he used his army experience to come up with that so fun fact about that but rod serling prolific writer before the twilight zone he won like multiple emmy awards as as we've you know had our um uh, our listeners read mm-hmm.
0: the mansky article yeah. yeah
1: so you know he won all these emmys for these 90 minute this was the era in the 1960s and 1950s especially the era of the 90 minute movie
0: yeah those uh, miniseries anthology series yes.
1: yes yeah so short run movies and so that's where he got his start he was super established but he ran into frustration of you know wanting to adapt a story that some of our listeners may I've heard
0: of. Yeah, and uh, I think the main thought uh, when you're reading the, the Mansky article and you're watching Twilight Zone to number one, think about um, back in the day, like if you offend someone, you're losing money. And you don't have a lot of channels to go to. It's not like there's gonna there's a Netflix waiting there or right. or anything else. Paramount Plus, right? to saying, that, hey, we'll pick you up, no problem. So right. you have a limited amount of people that you can pitch these ideas to. And his ideas were really groundbreaking for the time. And you saw that there was lots of inner workings about getting that idea pushed through. Yeah,
1: yeah. So yeah, this is uh, we talk a lot of today, uh, you know, in our culture about what cancel culture is or being canceled back then as you pointed out there was only three networks and if you you didn't appease the 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 sponsors then you would lose any clout that you had so even if you were the most established writer as As ross sterling Mm was you still had to abide by that. And so when he was influenced by actual current events, we, again, we're talking about science fiction, but before he was writing Twilight Zone, he was writing you know actual stories that dealt with real life. And one of those stories had to do with uh, the Emmett Till murder. Uh, and for those that are unfamiliar with Emmett Till, first of all, go go look it up because you should know <laughs> about it. It's part of American history. Um, but um, Emmett Till was a child. He was a 14-year-old child that was murdered, tortured, uh, and lynched, a uh, young African-American child uh, in the 1960s. And this was something that uh, impacted a lot of people at that time. Uh, and this was something that, you know, Rod... Sterling wanted to write a story about, and he wrote. I think he wrote what three
0: adaptations. Yeah, they like kept ha- k- changing it, right? Yeah, and they were like, "No, it. we don't. We don't like that," right? And we can most certainly think of um, situations in our time, right? A lot of uh, listeners had that question. Like, are there uh, kind of pathways between what happened with the Twilight Zone and what happened with Sterling to what's going on today? And most certainly you can see that, right? Like there'll be kickback from studios that they don't wanna use a certain actor for something or um, how, we're, how are we casting certain right. people into a role, right? right. This again was happening. Um, we have movies being made about tragic events. While it may not seem so groundbreaking today, right, in, in 2023, it was real groundbreaking back there in the 60s. For
1: sure. And he just wanted to adapt the story. He felt compelled that this was an important story to tell. And he was just met with constant, you know, you can't, you either have to change it or it's not going to work because, you know, we're going to lose our sponsors in the South. And that was a real concern that people were worried that we'd lose a Southern audience if you had the story. So what did he do? He was, he's a creative guy. So he ends up creating the Twilight Zone. And the Twilight Zone is a super subversive way to get your sort of Agenda and ideas out there. And so there are so many episodes that deal with everything from racism uh, to McCarthyism or communist, the communist uh, scare that was happening in uh, the 1950s, uh, you know, to what we watched, which was Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, one of my favorites. Uh, And this was a story written by Richard Matheson. And uh, Richard Matheson, for those of you that don't know, there was a movie that came out not that long ago called I Am Legend. And that was Mm -hmm. probably his most famous story, sort of a monster. Monster, uh, zombie, vampire story. And Matheson is a prolific horror and uh, television writer as well. And he wrote the episode Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. What I think is interesting about Nightmare at 20,000 Feet is it deals with issues of mental health, right? And that's something we're not seeing on television either, right? Mm-hmm. So part of the whole thing in that episode is, you know, is the William Shatner character. I think his name is Robert Wilson. I remembered it was Wilson because it was like Wilson. Wilson. Um, and so. You know, is he is he imagining there's a monster on the wing of the plane? Is he losing his mind? You see how other people are treating him, how they're patronizing him, uh, you know, all of those things that speak to his mental state. And then, of course, at the end, there's always that big twist at the end of the Twilight Zone. You're like, okay, he's being carted off. He's going to be put into a sanitarium again, uh, which is where he came from originally. And then you find out, right, you see the plane and you see the part of the plane that's been peeled back. You're like, oh, maybe he wasn't so crazy. He was seeing something.
0: And and again, plane travel right? It was just not it was right. not something that was like happening all the time like right. we are today, right? Um, do you do you love Peel um, for taking over Twilight Zone? Do you like that pick? Yeah, oh,
1: I think he's he's definitely great. Now, full disclosure, I haven't watched the new Twilight Zone. I'm very attached to the original. I love the original Twilight Zone. Um, that's one of those that I grew up watching marathons in New York. They would always do two marathons, one on uh, New Year's Eve. And then one on uh, July Fourth. I don't know why. Those are weird think. days for but that. But I will tell you, even Sci-Fi Channel and all that, they they took that on. They used to be like syndicated in those local networks, but now like national, you know, streaming services do that too. Like They'll, not Halloween. No. If you watch, I guarantee you, New Year's Eve. Some streaming service is going to market the Twilight Zone, probably Paramount Plus because they own Twilight Zone. I do love Jordan Peele. I think he's definitely an heir apparent because he's someone that sees how science fiction and horror they can all connect and tell us something about uh, ourselves, and we can learn from it. It's that Yes, it's us, us right, it's mm. us, it's them, it's all of the, it's that speculative fiction has that ability to really put the mirror up. And I, I and I love this, I forget, I, I, I wanna attribute who, what the author, the author that said this, it wasn't from our, yeah. um, our, our authors, I don't believe it was, but correct me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. call me out if I am. Uh, the, you know, Serling was really great at showing us the mirror of ourselves and so showing us that the monster is man, the mm-hmm. monster is human. But more than that, like we are the monster, right? Like it's not just it's not just the fact that that oh yeah it's like reflection of of us like some of us no it's like you're watching this and he's criticizing you right so I think that's the power of that type of fiction.
0: Well I I just loved our little conversation we should do this again soon.
1: Yes well <laughs> I'm I'm always excited to talk about I just want people to watch the Twilight so yeah. the original Twilight's and you can watch all five seasons watch the fact that this man wrote 92 uh, episodes that's crazy which is insane I've, I'm I'm going into a whole deep dive on Rod Serling I'm obsessed with this. They Maybe you
0: could teach a class about him. I am ready
1: to do it. He's done graduation speeches. He had a really cool graduation speech I was just
0: reading about. Really interesting guy um, to, to look up, Rod Serling. So... I um I really cannot wait to read everyone's uh talks and and uh yeah. and writings about us because I think uh, hopefully you have learned a lot, some deep dives from Professor Mancini. Uh, we we are really looking forward to seeing more of your responses and uh thanks for listening. Awesome. Thank you. He was born at nineteen. 19-
1: Thank you.